So we're going to look at the book of Romans today and invite you to grab a Bible today and uh, turn to Romans. Romans is about three quarters of the way through the Bible, maybe a little further than that. If you don't know where it is, uh, if you grab one of the Pew Bibles, you'll see there's some page numbers on the screen behind me. And as a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad if you would take that home as our gift to you today, okay? I want to start uh, with some light reading. <laughs> a book from my seminary days, Karl Barth, says on the dust cover, the dust cover is enough to get your attention, if you will. Born in 1886, died in 1968, Karl Barth is perhaps the most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century. Early in his career, he realized the ethical catch. Listen, listen tight. He, he realized the ethical bankruptcy of liberal Protestant theology and single-handedly buried it as a movement. He called the church back to Christ as the central tenets of its faith, and the broad richness of his thought, along with his fiery passion for the truth of the gospel has he taught us how to think theologically even when we disagree with him. And some of you are going, can you start over again, please, Wayne? Can you start over? Well, I get that. Uh, uh, my, my point is that this brilliant 20th century theologian, uh, he wrote and taught in a way that some people don't understand, and fair enough. Uh, I, I literally pulled this book from the shelf in the week and opened it up because of where I was going today because I wanted you to hear how complex some things can be. And I said... If I just open it, will it be... This is a writer talking about Bart. So just to even understand what people say about him, it can be confusing. For example, I open it up when... Here's what came up. It became, in time, it became apparent to Bart that the existential methodology which dominated his prolegomena prevented the word of God from being rightly comprehended as it stands over against man. That was one sentence. And some of you go, can you start again, please, Wayne? Well, here's my point. He was a deep thinker, but in 1962, the Swiss theologian of great renown in nerdy theolo theological circles came to the U.S. He visited the University of Chicago and lectured at the Rockefeller Chapel there. And probably like you and me, a lot of people just sit there. I have no idea what he's talking about. And I would be at least able to say I heard the guy talk one time, okay? That's, that'd be what you would say in 1962. And there were students in the, in the crowd who um, were just as dumbfounded as you, as you and me at what he was saying until one of them at the end of the, at the lecture put his hand up and he said, uh, Dr. Bart, could you, as one of the premier theologians of the 20th century, explain theology in the Bible in one clear sentence? Bart said, yes, I can. Yes, I can. In the words of a song that I learned at my mother's knee, here's what it is. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In other words, if you can boil it all down to what's it all about, why are we here today? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Are you familiar with that song? I thought we'd try singing it together. All right. I thought we'd try this. This is my trusty ukulele. You never thought you'd hear ukulele in church. Well, today's your day. <laughs> if, you're good, if you're good, I'll get my accordion out too. <laughs> Can you sing? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, 
Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells. Can you sing it? Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells. All right. So, my point being. If you want to get to where it all comes from, you get down to a simple ukulele and a song that says, Jesus loves me this time. And we could have had the whole band playing. We could have done it all big time, you know. But I thought, no, let's take it as simple and as straight up as we can. Four strings and a bunch of voices saying, Jesus loves me this I know. See, why am I here today? Why are you here today? It's because... We all need to be reminded of God's love for us. All the stuff that goes on around in the church, all these people, all the focus of our worship, our building, all the buildings that the church universal owns, the programs, the staff of our congregation and other congregations, the mission of the church worldwide, what's it all there for? So that people would know of God's love, that God has love for all people and God has love for you specifically. And you, neither you nor I deserve that love, but it comes to us free of charge, straight from heaven through Jesus Christ. In other words, God loves us that he's got this grace all over us, and you get to live in that grace. Let me see if I can back you up a little bit if you weren't with us last week and bring you up to speed. You know that in July, I wasn't in the pulpit at all. I didn't preach at all in July. I took the time that I would normally spend focusing on weekly sermons and spent a great deal of time studying the book of Romans for this series we're in right now and a series that's coming right after it called Room for Doubt. And um, I spent most of the time in the book of Romans because if we're going to empower you to tell people about the story of Jesus Christ, you've got to have some theological understanding and Romans is all about why we follow Jesus Christ. But I need to tell you, it's probably the most complicated, detailed book in Scripture in that regard. Because it's like a legal document. There are, if you will, there's a lot of whereas and because. If you've seen legal documents where they've got this and this and this, and you have to hold that intention while you have this, this, and this, and you've got to remember that, that, and that, and all the whereas's and because's and the why's, and then you get to a therefore. Romans is a whereas, 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 and because of this, and in light of that, and keeping this in mind, then you get to a therefore. Romans chapter 8 is a therefore. There are a lot of whereases before we get there. But when we get to chapter 8 today, here's what we're going to learn again today as we learned last week. We're going to learn of God's grace. We're going to learn of God's grace, how we can extend it to others. That's particularly where we're going to focus next week. But for today, how can we extend that grace to our own selves? So here's the basic structure or the sketch of Romans. Jesus Christ came as the Savior of humanity. He came first to a group of people called Jews. His life, ministry, and death all took place within an essentially Jewish context. He was Jewish himself. 
as the church, right after he died and went to heaven and the church began to grow, one of the things that was astonishing within the first few months was that non-Jewish people were interested in the story of Jesus Christ as well. And non-Jews became Christians as well. And so the apostles, the leaders of the early church, including a fellow by the name of Paul, had to figure out, okay, how are non-Jews and Jews going to relate? Do Jews get to be their first in and then Jews are second-class citizens? How's it all going to go? And Paul in the book of Romans says it doesn't matter where you, what your ancestry is or what, your blood, what blood is in your veins. It all comes down to faith. That faith, he says, is the key theological principle that unites both Jews and Gentiles alike because it's by faith that we are justified. It's by faith, he says, that we are that word justification, that we are made right before God. So we choose to believe that we are made right for God and that's available to both Jews and non-Jews alike in equal measure. And once that properly is under, that is understood properly, then any barrier between Jewish or non-Jewish people is, it begins to melt away. Because faith is a matter of the heart, not of blood. And anyone, hear me, anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, anyone who says, I choose to believe that Jesus Christ can forgive me of my sins and can be my leader, anyone who can choose to do that in faith would say, say, welcome, you're in the church. That's it. That is the measure of a person who becomes a Christian. We all know that, I think, or many people know that. That's what Romans is all about. That's a lot of the whereases and, you know, the becauses and we keep this in mind in the book of Romans. But then you get to a therefore. Chapter 8 is a therefore. Read with me Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, Paul says. So you know there's a lot of stuff that's gone before it. But when you see that, therefore, you go, okay, it's, there's some stuff gone before. Based on all the stuff that's gone before, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from what? The law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is this understanding that before God we are condemned and we've got to any way that we would work our way to not have that condemnation. We're set free from that. For, the law that was power, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. And we didn't have enough strength to do that in our flesh, to be good enough for God. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who live not according to who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And some of you go, man, Wayne, that's a, a sort of clear, but it's almost like that car bark guy again. Can you unpack it for me? Well, to help you understand some of the passages that are leading up to this, let me see if I can give you a um, a rundown of that. See, prior to chapter eight, Paul has stated that you can't do anything to stop in sin's influence in your life, in and of yourself. You in yourself don't have the power to not sin because, well, that's, it's built within you. He says that whether or not people tell you what is right or wrong, whether or not you're from a Jewish or a non-Jewish culture, and we might add whether or not you're from a first century mindset like what they would have within Scripture, or a 21st century mindset like we have, there's a problem that all of us face. We do things that we know are wrong, or we think things that we know we shouldn't think. We know it inherently. Romans says that the knowledge of what is right and wrong, while there might be particulars within each individual cultural setting, at its core, this business of right and wrong 
doesn't have to be taught because there's a basic moral code built into each culture, into each human system, into each human, that each human knows that there are things that are wrong, whether it be in the extreme of murder like Jeffrey Dahmer or even if you're cheating at the game of Monopoly. When you say, I'm cheating, you know by cheating you're breaking the rules, right? It's not just you being Donald Trump ahead of time, you know, anything like that. Oh, I didn't say that, did I? We'll come back to him in a minute or two. It's not you just being a, you know, a property mogul. It's, no, there's, there are ways to play the game correctly and there are ways to play the game incorrectly. The incorrect way is to cheat. And Christians say, we don't want to do things that are wrong. We strive to live in a way that says, I'm not going to sin him. But we go, oh, man, I can't accomplish this sinless life by ourselves. And we realize it's only possible through a grace-filled work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And accepting Jesus' work involves what Romans says is a death to our own striving. In other words, I know I can't do it anymore. Romans chapter 3, all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short. If this is where the mark is of me being sinless, I'm down here. I cannot seem to get there because some days I'm just, I'm just lousy with my friends and my family. And I've messed up. And I do other things. And so Christians are those who say, in faith, I'm accepting God's love for me and God's grace for me. And we live our lives in light of faith of God's gift of grace. It's grace and salvation that comes our way, which we accept in faith, and then we choose to live a Christian lifestyle. Sadly, a lot of people have got it backwards. They think, if I can only live good enough, then I will earn my salvation. No, a Christian lifestyle is the result of grace and salvation, not the other way around. So I, I have grace given to me, made available to me. I accept it in faith. Then I choose to live a better life. Paul asks the question that a lot of people would legitimately ask them. Well, if there's grace all over this, can I just live the way I want? Can't I just say, well, I'm going to accept grace and faith and then, you know, I'll live like the devil after that? No, he says, no, that's not a license to be engaged in sin. Instead, in light of relying on Jesus Christ, in light of accepting grace, Christians are called to forgo sin. But Paul does acknowledge a problem. That he says there's a struggle here in this because while I've accepted Jesus' work on my behalf, I was, I was aware of my sin before. When I cheated at Monopoly, I knew I was cheating before. But now since I've received forgiveness of all my sins and through faith all is well between me and God, it now seems that when I do sin, man, it just feels all the more potent. And I'm reminded of the evil within me and my propensity, my inclination. I have a bent towards doing things that are wrong or to thinking wrong. He puts it this way. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But I hate what I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep undoing. It's a lot of doing and wanting to do there, right? But basically saying, man, I know I should live this way. I'm, I live in grace and I want to live there, but sometimes I'm over here. Why is he saying that? Well, he's like you and me if we follow Jesus Christ. We know we're forgiven of our sin through Jesus Christ, but it seems now that, we are, now that we've received that grace, it's like somebody's underlined all the sins in our lives and we're more, made more aware of them. 
And what do we do about that? This doesn't feel very freeing, does it? If I'm forgiven my sin, I should be able to just be forgiven and go. But why is it now that I'm forgiven, I'm more aware? Well, that's why he comes back. In light of all that, Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's laid it all out and says, then based on all that, may I remind you, your sins are forgiven, there's no condemnation. Look at how it's written and put in the message. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. Instead, a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has pushed the cloud away. It's magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. That low-lying black cloud is sin's condemnation. And I want to tell you, friend, What Paul is saying is if you've accepted the grace of God, if you have learned how deeply God loves you and you're willing to live there, there's no longer a legal penalty of of hell assigned to you. That word condemnation condemnation there, it's katakrima in in Greek. It means there's no longer a legal penalty that you face before God. Your sin is completely forgiven. And when we say forgiven, it's not like... You paid the penalty and now you're free. No, Jesus Christ paid the penalty and you're forgiven. And there is no longer condemnation in two ways. First of all, there is no longer that sin condemnation before God. And secondly, we should no longer have a sin condemnation within ourselves toward ourselves. Remember I said we'd learn of God's grace in this series and learn not only to extend it to others but to ourselves. This speaks to the dilemma we all face. We are all aware of our shortcomings and Well, no one else might have the willingness or the gall to tell you where you're bad or where you're wrong or where you've messed up. You certainly know where it is, right? I've been wondering about that this week, given the recent uh, GOP presidential debate on Thursday night. I found it quite fascinating. Did anyone else? I mean, I wonder what kind of personal inner strength it takes to stand in front of the nation and say, I want to be the next president of the United States of America. I can do this, I've done that, I've seen this and that occur in my past work and career accomplishments. And that takes some, uh, I think, two things. One is personal strength and a little bit of gall as well. I get that. Uh, Donald Trump did cause me to crack up from time to time because, man, I I think he's just given fodder for all the the comedians who are responsible for lampoons and impressions. They're having a heyday. That frown and habit of his that he has where he throws this, I mean, I can do it. I can do it. I can do, I just need more of a comb over. I can do it really well. And, (laughs) but as I was watching those guys, this thought occurred to me. You know, how you watch things and you reflect back on yourselves and, and, uh, thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not called to do that. But on the other hand, think about what I do for a living. I'm part of a pastoral team of a church, and um, that's not presidential. But I know that there's something within me that must be fairly bold in some ways, right? Because each week, most weeks, I'm called to preach and declare God's word. And that's fairly bold thinking that somebody would stand up and say to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, hey, um, want you to hear God's word through me. That's pretty bold. It's frankly, if you could see inside me at the same time, it's pretty absurd at the same time because (laughs) 
Every week, every four services a weekend, I get up here and I go, do you, do you know how absurd it is that these people are listening to you, Wayne Kent? Do, you, do, they, do those listening really get how non-pastoral I really am on the inside? I wonder about the GOP uh, presidential candidates in that regard. What do they think about when they're standing and saying, I want to be the president of the United States? What do they think about themselves in private? I get that they have bravado, but what do they think about themselves deep down within their souls? I think they're probably like you and me about how we think about ourselves. That's clever. That's clever. <laughs> We're keeping a watch of the weather on the front row. And man, okay, I love it. <laughs> You're not sure of what I just said. Let me say it again. <laughs> and this is the service for taping. <laughs> All the world is going to see this. I love it. What, what, what are those guys like as they stand there and what do they think about themselves? I think they're like you and me, aren't they? I mean, I know that just by being human, I have a public persona. I mean, I also have one that's, a little, that's shaped by my role in the community and my job as a pastor. But I know what that's like. And it's not that it's incongruous. It's not that there's incongruity with who I am on the inside. I mean, but I'm quite aware that sometimes what's there is not exactly how I'm feeling on the inside. Because I'm like Paul. I know that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, I'm unworthy to talk to God, to be considered a person of faith, to be a man of Christian character. That's what Paul is addressing here. He said a lot of whereases, and then he's saying, well, let me see if I could line them out for you. Whereas Jesus died for me, whereas there is no difference between Jew or non-Jew in God's eyes regarding sin or redemption, whereas all people have a need for Christ's blood to cover their sins, and whereas I've asked God to see me through the work of Jesus Christ, and whereas my sin is now forgiven, I no longer live with the condemnation of sin in eternity, or frankly, friends, even right now. See, it's one thing for me to say, in faith my eternity is taken care of, but can you remind yourself that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus even today? You are no longer a slave to sin, to the lies Satan tells about your condemnation, to the lies he tells others about, your, about, about Christians, or to the lies he even tries to tell you. Satan is the father of lies, we're told. One thing Satan would love to do is to have you not worry about eternity, perhaps, but worry and live your life today as if you are a sinner, condemned by that sin. I've got great news for you, friends. You are not bound to the sin of the past. You're not even necessarily bound to the sin of the future in many ways. That's probably another sermon. But you are not even bound to the sins that you can't remember if you've confessed them or not. 
You are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. And in God, God's tremendous great grace, extend that grace to yourself. Let me explain it this way. You're aware of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. He made it before the Civil War ended, and it became effective really only after the Civil War ended. But what was interesting, as his proclamation was brought forward and as it began to be made known and worked all the way across the United States, an interesting phenomena occurred in some settings across the United States in the lives of particular slaves. Some of them, many of them, didn't leave the places where they were and they didn't change their lifestyles to accommodate their new freedoms. In other words, they were so accustomed to slavery and to their master's approach to life that they could not think of life in a new way. They thought of themselves as slaves. They may may have told themselves they're free and they may have heard that, but they didn't live any differently. There's a great example of that. One slave by the name of James Turner McLean who learned to read and write after the war ended and was able to record his feelings, and you you can see it out there if you want to do some research on this. In his writings, he talks about how he couldn't leave his master for some 15 years because he couldn't see himself as free. He intellectually knew he was free, but deep in his soul, he couldn't live that way. Does that sound familiar to us? When it comes to the fact that our sins are forgiven and we intellectually know it, we make that a statement of faith, and yet we, don't have it let, we, we haven't let it sink deep down into our souls. Some Christians are like that. They remain slaves to sin. They live under the condemnation of that sin, working like the dickens to erase it, having never understood that sin is gone. I want to I give you some great news today. If you walk with Jesus Christ today, if you've made a decision in faith to accept this grace, your sin is gone. You are no longer bound by that. The days ahead are full of great potential and new life and new freedoms. So to help you understand that and kind of let it sink a little deeper into you today, I want you to read some scripture with me. They're going to be on the, the scriptures are going to be on the screen behind me. They're all taken from the book of Romans to the point where we've read so far. And uh, hear the word of God today. Make this, these statements from God's word as a statement of faith. Live them in grace and see what God will do in your soul. So read aloud with me, please, friends. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have this grace in which we now stand. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I am not a slave to sin. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Take a look at the next one. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under the grace. I am not a slave to sin. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, 
You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm not a slave to sin. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. One more. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. We are God's children. I'm not a slave to sin. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Live your life this week differently. The junk you did in the past, it's gone. It is gone, friends. All the screw-ups and the mess-ups, they're done with. Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me. Bring it down to simple stuff with a ukulele. Jesus loves, or can we just, can you sing it with me again? Simple words that have a huge impact. Sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me God, help us to live there this week. Help us to live with an understanding of your love and how in grace you sent Jesus Christ and that has a powerful impact upon our lives. We are not slaves to sin, either the sins of the past or the sins of the future, but instead, God, 
We are people who are redeemed and bought back by you. We are your children. We can come to you with simple statements like, we need to know your love. Remind us there is no condemnation, not only eternally, but not at this point either in our lives now. And we will live our lives differently this week based on your great love for us. Help us to do that today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand together, please, friends, and to kind of seal this, I'd like to invite you to be people of continued worship and prayer. And um, there'll be some of us from the leadership teams of the church will be here at the front if you'd like to pray with us about a matter. Uh, pray with us about, you know, something really good going on or some place where you need some help. Or maybe it's the case, eh, you'd like to say, hey, Wayne, you have no idea the junk in my life of the past. All of us have got it. But I'd like to just leave it behind. I'd like to say it's forgiven and forgotten and move on, and I don't want it impacting me any longer. It's, it's shaped me for too long. I, I, I don't want to live there. If you'd like to have that kind of prayer, we'll be here. We'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe at least start the discussion and figure out what God's doing in the midst of all of that. The congregation is going to support those prayers with worship, and while, you, while the congregation worships at this time, you're invited to come.